Welcome to Centering Health Equity. I'm Maria Hernandez, your co-host and COO of Impact for Health. And I'm Dwayne Reynolds, co-host and president of the Chartist Just Health Collective. On today's show, we explore how organizations seeking to advance health equity are now beginning to focus on becoming anti-racist organizations. We think of this as the next level of a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy that takes an active role in dismantling systemic inequities. Our guests today are Dr. Aletha Maybank, Senior Vice President and Chief Health Equity Officer for the American Medical Association, and Myra Aldana Gregorian, the Senior Vice President and Chief People Officer at Seattle Children's. Dr. Maybank was instrumental in the AMA's recent organizational strategic plan to embed racial justice and advance health equity. Myra Aldana Gregorian led the development of Seattle Children's Health Equity and Anti-Racist Action Plan. Both women are trailblazers in this work, and we are thrilled to have them with us. Our conversation highlights the challenge of dismantling racist structures, policies, and practices that are often entrenched in the way healthcare is designed and provided. We also look at the difference between developing an inclusive workplace culture to one that actively challenges bias of all forms. Thank you so much, Myra and Aletha, for joining us on our show today. We are so honored that you both made time for this really important discussion about what it means to be an anti-racist organization. As you both know, in the landscape of this country, there's a lot of organizations that are trying to create a culture of inclusion. They're working on diversity, equity, and inclusion but very few organizations, I think, have now taken it to the next level. And so I'd like to start with you, Aletha. Can you share with us, what do you think it means to be an anti-racist organization? How is that different? Thanks, uh, and a pleasure to be here with you all uh, for the, this conversation, um, and a conversation that absolutely is critically, not only just important, but I think essential fundamentally to how we thrive and survive as human beings on this planet and in society in a conversation that has been happening for generations. I think us now at this point in time, we see it elevated, which is great, you know, especially since the, the public murder of George Floyd and this just that's happening across the country. But I just want to acknowledge and recognize that this is not a new conversation. And there are many groups that have been, you know, marching <laughs> to this for, again, generations, but also um, have suffered um, tremendously and tremendous tolls that have been had for the expense of doing anti-racism work explicitly. And so, you know, Imbre Kende, Dr. Kimbre Kende, in his book, an anti, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which many folks are more familiar with now, you know, describes it to be an anti-racist as a radical choice in this face of history requiring a radical reorientation of consciousness. And I talk a lot about this work being a shift in critical consciousness and how we see and understand the, and view the world primarily from our own lens. You know, there definitely are structural needs and the structural needs impact the cultural aspects of this work and vice versa. 
But if we cannot change and shift our own consciousness as individuals, it's hard to do it at the institutional level, you know? And so fighting, you know, anti-racism is you're explicitly fighting against the system that exists of power and oppression that we know benefits white folks and does not benefit Black and Latinx and um, Indigenous peoples, you know, folks who identify at the spectrum of color. Um, you know, some of these terms are hard to use sometimes now. And it's, it's again, consciously making sure that we are not upholding, I think, um, white supremacy even more specifically, the hierarchy of human value based on skin color. And really, to me, that is the, the space and the reality um, in terms of specifically about white supremacy that we're all fighting against as it relates to anti-racism. And, you know, as an organization, I think a strong part of it is naming racism, especially in this context of equity, as a fundamental cause of why these inequities exist within this country. Um, and then putting forward specific strategies that explicitly name and demonstrate how racism shows up in our systems and then what we need to do to dismantle those realities, but also the how we're doing it becomes really important in anti-racism work. In other words, you know, who is being engaged per se, um, or who are we engaging with? Who are we understanding and valuing that there are power, there's power that exists in other ways and shows up beyond financial resources? Folks' own experience, expertise, and ideas are very much need to be strong contributors of how we implement um, an anti-racism approach at an institutional level. And then lastly, I'll just say all of that also being in the context of, you know, how are we not only just dismantling structures of racism and realities and culture and preventing harm and not creating more harm, it's what are we doing to actually get to the point of healing from that harm that has existed um, collectively uh, as a result of the choices we make as institutions, but also society overall. Thank you so much, Aletha. Wow, there is so much there to unpack. But let me bring in Myra into the conversation because, Myra, I know that you have a very uh, tactical, practical, hands-on experience with this at Seattle Children. So how would you define that journey to an anti-racist organization? Yeah, thank you, uh, Dwayne and Maria, for having me join you as well for the conversation. Just to give a little bit of background, I currently work at Seattle Children's, as you mentioned, and we've been on a long EDI journey. And so for us, declaring that we would become anti-racist was really a way to pivot the organization from, I don't want to say complacency, but let's say comfort, uh, because we weren't really seeing the changes at the institutional level, at the ideological level, the interpersonal level, et cetera. And so we really kind of stepped back and said, what do we need to do to kind of reactivate our system, right? And so when I think of what it means to be anti-racist at Seattle Children's, you know, there are those four kind of eyes, right? The institutional, ideological, interpersonal, and internalized forms of racism that we're really trying to approach this holistically. And I would say that the word that comes to mind for me is really around action, right? So it isn't just training or identifying, but it's really the active process of kind of changing our culture, our structure, our behaviors um, that really help perpetuate systemic racism and that are deeply embedded in healthcare. And so we started this also in 2020 following um, the killing of George Floyd. And it's been quite a change for our culture. And we're just, I would say, in the early stages of, of moving the work forward. Excellent. 
Um, I know Seattle Children's uh, is is on a journey, which is really what this work is about. Uh, when we think about it, it is both a personal journey and an institutional and, and sort of societal journey. So um, I'd like to ask this question of both of you. What type of formal support structures are really in place for individuals that are interested in anti-racism efforts? So I'll mention a few. I mean, we have so much activation in our system right now that uh, I could probably take the whole time just going over them and not finish them. Uh, but the three that stand out to me um, as really being very deliberate and I think propelling this work forward, I would say it starts with our board of trustees. So we've gone back and added to our vision and our values anti-racism as a value, right? Because it's not to be confused with EDI work. And so that's where people want to go is they want to stay in that kind of safe space of EDI. And so really calling it out and embedding it in our vision and our values, which then we are going to leverage to create values-based behaviors, anti-racist values-based behaviors, of which we had already you know, created for our, our, our six exist, existing values. So that's one element of work. We've also uh, developed a health equity anti-racism action plan with quarterly report outs to the community and to our workforce, which is probably our key stakeholder in this work. Um, probably because of where we're at, we're in the you know far uh, left corner of the United States, there is a progressive feel in the city of Seattle. I would say that we have to be careful that it's not the entire state of Washington. So we can sometimes assume everyone around us is really all in on this work and that's not the case. But certainly from our uh, workforce, um, there is a huge degree of interest and action around this work and activation. Um, and so these quarterly report outs, I think, help with holding us accountable to the work and ensuring transparency. And then probably uh, most recently is we're launching a bias reduction in medicine training. So in collaboration with some faculty out of the University of Washington and the University of Michigan and Wisconsin, we developed some actual specific training for our workforce using scenarios that have happened in our system, right? So highlighting policies that we know need to change because they're racist. So actually using things that would be very real to our team, to our workforce members, so that it can't be just like something that's happening over there, but something that we need to all collectively work on and do differently. Um, and so we developed an eight-hour uh, training class uh, led by the, the faculty who are now kind of training our internal learning um, team to then scale it. Um, and one of the initial cohorts that's going to go is our, our three respective board of trustee groups. So again, it, you know, tone does start from the top. Resourcing has to start uh, from the top, from the organization at the, at the strategic level. You know, that's another formal structure, Dwayne, that I should probably add is that we did add this to our organizational wide strategic plan and received funding of $25 million. So it was this idea that it's not an unfunded mandate or it's not just soft things. It's like any other business strategy. It needs to be funded and it needs to be funded well and resourced in order for us to really move the work forward. So I think those are a few examples. That's excellent. I, I really like your call out about anti-racism being separate and distinct from equity, diversity, and inclusion work, right? There's certainly overlap, but in order to really address systemic racism, we have to be focusing on anti-racism and not sort of getting 
clouded in the comfort of EDI and, you know, the other isms and discrimination components that we're facing. And I think we do that because of the history of our country, right? It is the major issue that we have to overcome if we're actually going to create equity. So I really like that that focus with in Seattle Children's. And to your point of starting at the top of the organization, the board, the C-suite, developing it into strategy becomes a really critical component that we've seen uh, in the organizations that we work with. So Aletha, the, the same question to you, now, what are some of the structures, support structures that you see out there that um, individuals can partake in in order to move along their anti-racism journey? Yes, so thanks for the question. You know, the work at the AMA, it's an organization that's been around since 1847, and our mission is around, you know, protecting the art and science of medicine, the betterment of public health. So our mission tells us, you know, that we should be doing this work in very, I feel, intentional ways, but clearly the foundations of the organization, as the foundations of this country, it was not including everybody, right? And we know this, and we know that, you know, it was predominantly white men if really exclusively white men that were really um, benefiting from these early foundations of what our nation was about, whatever the sector was, um, whether it was education or housing or healthcare, all of it. And so now, you know, in the last couple of years, AMA, I would say probably in the last 20 years or so, since the turn of the century, has done more work that's more explicit in really naming its history and its contributions to racism and exacerbating it. And one, you know, an apology and acknowledgement of the exclusion of Black physicians over a whole course of, you know, 100 years and, and what that means for us as AMA and the importance of righting the wrongs of the past. And then I would say in the last, you know, four years or so, more explicit and intention work to have an organizational structure as the Center for Health Equity and a person leading the work and a, a team driving the work or facilitating the work, to be more clear, of this work of equity across the institution. And it's facilitating, I emphasize, because it's not the exclusive work of the Center for Health Equity, right, to embed equity across all aspects of the management team, all aspects of whether it's data or publication or budget and contracting, like that's everyone's work and it's known as an accelerator. So it's been framed and positioned by our leadership team, by the board of trustees and our CEO for all executive staff that they that this is part of their work. And then there's accountability to that as well. We had um, all of our teams actually submitted equity action plans um, in, at the end of December. It was our first time doing it. So is it perfect? No. Um, however, you know, it's a start. And we provided some guidance on how to do that, working very closely with our HR internal partners, as well as our comms partners, to just make sure that we're providing that technical support and for our teams. They need, they need support. This is a new body of work that many folks do not have expertise around. And so that's what we're working on, on providing now to the, their action plans that they would put forward in response to our strategic plan that we released um, last May. And our strategic plan, you know, has five components to it. The first being um, embedding equity into all of our performance, practice, policy. That's all the internal work, right? The, the concepts of the internal, um, the inside-outside approach to doing equity and driving organizational change work that supports it. 
And then there are four other, you know, um, approaches as well. One, just kind of teaching and informing and engaging physicians and healthcare systems to think more and act more at the root causes of, of disease <clears throat> beyond just the downstream impacts. And then also, you know, fostering pathways for truth, reconciliation, and healing for our past. I think that's very explicit um, anti-racism work um, that is happening at our institution. And then just the other part, I think, is really important for why we've had so much leverage. Um, and Maria uh, mentioned that, you know, this was a really leading document is because of policy that was passed explicitly and really organized, I think, by the energy of our med students and our young physicians, um, as we see happening across the country. But one, naming racism as a public health um, threat to ridding our healthcare system of racial essentialism and recognizing race as a social, not a biological construct. And it's really interesting, that second one, because for many of us who have been doing this work, we're like, of course it's not. But the reality is, is that the larger part of our society, whether healthcare, education, whatever, or everyone else, does not fully understand that, that it's not biological. And the third was about supporting the elimination of race as a proxy for ancestry, genetics, and biology, and medical education, research, and clinical practice, which has come up um, quite often. But those policies and those structures have helped really provided us kind of the room and leverage to talk about, to do, and to provide action, and then also working with others in unique ways. And the last thing I'll mention in terms of working with others in unique ways is who else is leading anti-racism work um, in our communities, but in the country overall, and how do we partner with those folks to hold us accountable? Um, that it actually doesn't have to be a science-oriented or science-based institution, um, but somebody who, in a group that's just knows what it means to kind of organize and show up in this space in very powerful ways. Thank you. Those are really wonderful examples of what it takes to do this work. And you've both given a very comprehensive view that it has to, you know, resonate at the top. There has to be real practical, tactical things to do. And I guess, um, Aletha, I'm interested in hearing from you, what's been the range of reactions as you have launched this effort. I know that you're a national focused organization, if not even somewhat international, but what has been the range of response and, and how have you navigated what to do for those who might resist this work? And I know, Myra, you'll also be able to speak to that, but I'm curious from the national perspective, what's been the range of responses? Yes, thank you for the question. And I think, you know, the national response plays out in the news like weekly, right? It's I, I, AMA is not immune to, again, where our society is. And like the reality is, is that science provided the foundation for these beliefs and understandings or, or beliefs, let's put it that way, that there is a level of inferiority based on skin color, whatever way you are, that does not align with being white and being a man. And so it's going to play out in all levels of institutions and especially national ones that are not typically talking about these issues of anti-racism, discrimination. And so it's, it's a shock, I think, to many people that we even put forward the strategic plan that we did. And not just, it's a shock from all across the board for folks who have been doing equity work and justice work to those who have not, because it's just not a position that AMA has Put forward. And again, I still I speak to the energy 
of the, the med food student section and the minority affairs section that's really driven a lot of that policy, along with many other champions. You can't just do it with one or two groups of folks. I want to be really clear that there are lots within the AMA and the House of Delegates that are extremely not just supportive, but are also championing this work and wanting it to drive forward. Now, to that point, you can imagine, even though it's a national organization, the thing about what folks don't realize about AMA, its representation, though, is across the country. It's like it's very democratic. It's very much like Congress, right? It has representation from all the different states. So you can imagine states that would typically be resistant to doing equity work or anti-racism work. We see all this legislation popping up now, you know, trying to block certain forms of education as it relates to just teaching racism or things around gender equity, that it plays out the same way in AMA. And so we've had certain segments across the country geographically that have definitely offered resistance. But what's been helpful um, is that the Board of Trustees has made it very clear um, that this is the direction we have put forward and it's the direction that we're going to continue going in. It provides an opportunity for us to have, honestly, for me to listen to voices that sometimes I don't always listen to because I'm in the institution. So, you know, it's, it's helpful to hear how people are thinking and how they're responding to what they're thinking, but then also being in dialogue, sometimes it just really shed light on that certain ways of thinking actually don't really add up, you know, that that's not really a true narrative. That wasn't the true intention behind doing this work. Uh, and so it puts myself and my team, and I think others who typically wouldn't be in conversation, in conversation with one another. And it forces us, I think, in a good way, to kind of see each other's humanity once you are actually intimately in conversation, right? You can't you can't push somebody aside. You can. I mean, it happens. But when you're you're working for an organization and you really have an you have a desire for this to work, and you're now in front of folks and you're in community, and I think there's a different drive and a different opportunity to listen to one another. So that's how we've kind of overcome it internally, you know, externally. Again, you just keep moving forward with the work and you focus on who are going to be the champions and who are going to help drive the work or else you'll get exhausted otherwise. Thank you so much, Aletha. How about you, Myra? What what are the range of responses that you've seen in Seattle to the work that uh, Children's is doing? Well, like any organization with 10,000 people and also kind of, you know, over a 100-year history, I would say the the diversity is definitely there and there's been reactions kind of throughout the whole spectrum. What I would say though is that so for example, you know, I've gotten my share of anonymous letters sent to me that have been really just hateful and against our anti-racism work when we've gone out with a communication following Breonna Taylor, for example, we got you know feedback saying, you know, why are you calling out this case, et cetera. Because again, kind of going back to the Seattle culture, the city of Seattle, a lot of the complaints or dissension, I'll call it that, is anonymous, which of course makes it a little bit harder to, to approach directly, right? Because you're not getting this in conversation, you're not having someone raise their hand and ask a thoughtful question or express a different perspective. It, it tends to come kind of from an anonymous complaint perspective. But I would say that overall, as an organization, we have more support for moving our anti-racism work forward than 
at least what I'm hearing and seeing as resistance. And so what, what we've done is, of course, to, to try to support the work with a variety of, you know, structures created for the first time ever, our system-wide EDI council, which we're calling HEDI, Health Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, with six subcommittees. We have additional ways to, to engage workforce members. And in fact, I think that's going to be one of the things that we're going to have to be careful with is that we're organizing the work and aligning it versus just having everybody do everything. It's really about how do we, you know, create some synergy and, and actually move outcomes forward instead of um, just have everyone doing their own thing. But certainly I've gotten all types of responses and reactions. So one of the ways I try to address kind of some of the complaints is to, you know, talk about having received anonymous complaints. I try to addressed through org-wide communications, whether I'm speaking at a town hall or whether we're publishing something, try to address what the underlying complaint was without sourcing it um, to try to overcome some of that kind of, the, some of the resistance that we're hitting. Can I just add to that too? And, and Myra, you know, thank you for sharing your experience. Sometimes I share, sometimes I don't in terms of the personal experience, because there's a part of it that I don't want it to be kind of all-consuming um, of myself and in my brain, in my mind as well. Um, and just also recognizing that there are many folks who have experienced this again for generations in terms of um, violence and harm in response to fighting for justice and, and the ability for us to all be valued as human beings. And so, you know, there are folks who are personally targeted. And I think during this time for me, like I've realized much more how many folks have been directly targeted with threats to their lives, to their children's lives. And we see it play out even especially during this time of COVID, I think even amplified even more for healthcare workers. You know, it's like that talk about intersectionality in a way, like the intersection of doing anti-racism work and then COVID work on top of it. It's generated a lot of attention and uh, confidence, I think, amongst folks that on many different forums they can put forward threats in which in ways that they haven't really before. It, I'm not saying threats haven't come before, but they're just there's a uniqueness when you have social media and all these other opportunities. And so myself absolutely have received direct threats and to my home doors. Many folks, well, several folks know if they've read certain articles. And you know, I'm at a conference now, and I have to have security detail if if it's a public situation. Um, so. But I'm not, it's not just me. There are many folks who are experiencing this. And so anti-racism work then at the institutional level also asks the question, like, how are you supporting your employees during this time? You know, and knowing that not only just in a response, but how are you preparing for this reality of the experience of your employees as well as your patients and those who you're serving? But I think employees have been left out of it in terms of like intentional planning and strategic planning on how we're going to support them um, in the future and in the present time. That was such a great perspective to bring up. Um, I work with some organizations at the national level, and um, I've had a few of the leaders be targeted um, very public way, people showing up to their homes, et cetera. So this work is not without its challenge. I mean, it can be very scary, but I think that's part of what it takes is courage to be okay with the challenge, knowing that you're fighting for the right things ultimately. If we think about the 
AMA and it's a membership-based organization. So people can, you know, choose to stay or, or go uh, based off of their interests. But at Seattle Children's, obviously people are employed. So have you had circumstances where, you know, someone has actually voiced their racist perspectives or had situations where you've had to address that um, within your employee population and how are you approaching? So again, we're in a very indirect culture. In fact, when we were actually, uh, when we launched our, our values-based culture, kind of culture renovation work, one of the things we identified was that we needed to stop avoiding conflict and embrace conflict a little more. Little did I realize, you know, three years later <laughs> that we would really be knee deep in something that was going to be viewed as controversial. But what that lends itself to is this very passive, aggressive, indirect way of addressing things, right? So for example, I have not experienced what Aletha mentioned, you know, from a personal kind of safety perspective, but what I have experienced is people attacking my leadership. And I know that at the crux of it is it's that I'm leading this work, right? So I've been accused of reverse racism. I've been the recipient of anonymous complaints. When that doesn't work, they go to ethics hot point line. So it's it's an attack on my career, so to speak, right? I've had all of my social media pages, I've had to take them down because people were going on in order to criticize me and submit a complaint about something that my brother had liked on social media or something like that. So it's definitely been a very difficult time when you weren't expecting it. And so I think that is that was my naivete that I really just viewed this as the evolution of EDI work. You know, I've had my own growth in this work and not understanding just everything that this would uh, bring out in people. And some of the pressure, to be honest with you, comes from people that are um, also big supporters of the work where, where absolutely nothing you do is enough. And that becomes a distraction too, to be honest with you, because you spend so much time defending what you're doing and justifying why you're doing it and why why you can't jump to 100, why you have to do one through 90 first, that it takes away from the work, right? And so what sometimes it is very kind of frustrating in that I just want to keep moving the work forward. I want to get us to equity at Seattle Children's. I want us to be leaders in this space. And you're just defending yourself all the way around constantly. So it's it certainly has has been a challenging time personally and professionally for me. I echo all that you have said. <laughs> like that part is yes, yes, you know, and that it's so real. You know, it's so you have to find like we have to find what are those things that keep us engaged. You know, because there are times when you, you're just like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this work? Why am I trying to convince people to care about other people? You know, and, you know, you find, we find it, you know, we find our grounding and, and our why and remember our why, I should say. However, you know, it it is a constant, it's a constant challenge, you know, and it's again, not new to us. It's, I think, historically been that. Um, And uh, I just wanted to, again, echo, like, uh, Myra, I I definitely understand that context. The other point just to say is that AMA is a membership organization, but we also have a staff of 1,100 or so folks. And so, again, the work that we're doing, the embedding work is with those 1,100 folks who execute on the policies that are passed. We work on behalf of the membership. 
So the same kind of issues that play out in other institutions with employees are the same issues that play out here. And look at JAMA from last year. JAMA, largest um, medical journal in the world, and had a tremendous and traumatic incident that happened that definitely garnered a lot of national attention. But internally, it was highly traumatic for staff. Um, and we had to host town halls and provide space that was you know, safe psychologically for people to voice how upset and embarrassed they were and humiliated by it. And then there was action, as folks know, taken upon the part of the institution, which is anti-racism work, right? To say that this is not acceptable and we need to find another leader, right? And so they're in the process of doing that. So I just wanted to highlight the, we, we have employees too that we're working with. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I wanna, I, I just wanna, pause and acknowledge both of you for your courage uh, in this work because uh, it is daunting for those of us that are working in the field and certainly for those who have very public roles and positions leading this work. So I want to let you know how much we appreciate what you are doing and just know that there are those of us who uh, are in the background rooting you on and, and there to support when you have those those circumstances and i do think that anybody doing this work has to have sort of their circle of trust and, and people that they can lean on to just release some of what you you are holding in um, through these processes so i wanted to acknowledge and thank you both for that yeah and i was going to ask one final question what thread of effort would you say gives the most hope for the work that you're doing? In other words, what do you see bringing people together? Uh, and I'll give this one example in the work that I've been doing. I have been training physicians around unconscious bias and how it impacts um, their interaction with patients. And at first, uh, the young ones get it. I think the younger generation of physicians really get that. For the older physicians who are not as familiar with some of the language that we're speaking to right now, there's a little bit of doubt. And what helps enormously for them is the data. They can't ignore the data around where inequities exist. And I think that's an important way to reach that audience. Is there something else that each of you have seen in the work that you're doing that provides more hope for the work as you move forward? For me, I would say in terms of what provides more hope, again, I go back to the to where the future has the potential to go. And that's looking again to the students, the young physicians. They have the consciousness, they have the language, they have the lens, they have, as I you know, talk about that generation sometimes, but they have a sense of they deserve this. I think just rooted in themselves that allows their voice to be even more powerful and stronger collectively. I feel many in my generation, we had, not that they don't get the same message, but it, but I think they've been raised differently, you know, that they do belong and, that, and all of these things where our generation did quite, well, I'll say my generation of those who are like in their 40s or so, we didn't have those kind of constant messages, not in that way, you know, of, of our value and, and you deserve this. There were so many messages that were present in media and and the toys we played with and the video games we played with or the media that we looked at, the magazines, 
that said we weren't of value and we didn't deserve. And the system said that to us over and over again. And they do still say that, but I do think there's a there's a different context with some of these young with some of the young folks that really are able to step up and say, nope, this is what I'm worth, this is how I'm deserved, and we all want this. And I hear, you know, from I've experienced it as a leader who tends to have younger folks on my team. And the way that they hold me accountable, sometimes I'm like, oh my goodness, let me breathe a little bit. But it's wonderful because they they like they really hold me accountable. Um, and and I think that's probably the nature of young people in general. But I do think there's something definitely um, different about this group just because of their knowledge base and, and their access to be able to gain knowledge um, is tremendous. So I would say the young people from, from my perspective. Yeah, I agree with both of your comments. Um, the one thing I'd add at Seattle Children's, right, we're, we're really chasing equity. And so that's until that until we achieve that, the work isn't done. And so it's kind of a not an easy business case to make, but I think what gives me hope is that for the first time in my career here, I'm seeing kind of this ultra focus on this and this ability to prioritize the work. Whereas that was one of our other kind of cultural norms that we were trying to overcome was everything's a priority. There's 5 million things going on. And so then what's really a priority? And I could walk into an executive meeting a board meeting or a workforce meeting today at Seattle Children's and absolutely everybody would say that our anti-racism and EDI work is the priority. And so to actually have unanimous support for it as a business strategy and focus, I think gives me hope that the work itself has so much momentum right now that if I were to hit the lotto or anyone on my team were to hit the lotto and not come back tomorrow, the work is bigger than any one person. And I think that's huge and that's great because it means that because of our workforce and because of our intention and focus, we are gonna achieve equity and it's it's gonna take us a minute and we're gonna have to work hard at it and it's not gonna be easy. And you know, we've had to cut, overcome kind of inertia, if you will. Um, and to some degree, you know, we had a ton of data and people, wanted more data and more data and more, you know, and it's like, no, we're done studying the data. We now have to action this work. And so we're finally there where we're actioning it and people aren't trying to get rid of the discomfort. And so to me, that gives me a lot of hope. Thank you so much for both of your perspectives on that. Dwayne, do we have time to ask our last little question that we always seem to ask? I think we've got four minutes in the schedule. How about if we keep this as brief as we can? <laughs> Yeah, so um, we'd like to understand, you know, how the last few years have changed you personally and how you're doing as you chart through this work, um, as you continue to lead in your respective organizations, how have you changed and how are you doing? You know, earlier in our conversation, I mentioned the reality of like having personal threats, right? And so that and I'll, that, I'll speak to how that changes one or how it changed me. You know, in doing this work, I, I would say this year has been especially hard and challenging. Uh, and it almost speaks to what Myra was saying earlier as it relates to having to prove oneself. And that part of the work after a while, you know, I think institutions are having some really great intentions and good intentions around doing this work and working through what it starts to mean to do this work. 
And when they start to realize like it takes more resources, it has to be resourced energy, these conversations need to happen that are not comfortable. Folks tend to start to push back against that and, and get want to get quiet or want to quell the work. And they're starting to feel a fatigue. And what I say about that fatigue, and I said, that's the fatigue that all of us have been, who have been experiencing racism or any form of oppression really, um, but especially racism for generations, that's the fatigue that exists. So now folks who are not used to the experience of racism, what it feels like, right? And, and, and um, to be harmed, but those who have been benefiting from it are now starting to understand a little bit more that it's tiring, it's exhausting. The system of oppression exhausts people, it saps people's energy. So in the context of that and the how I'm doing, you know, I am working to not exhaust myself, even though I have become exhausted, but how do I kind of un, you know, go in a direction where I am able to kind of capture my joy understand that joy is still important to figure out how to experience in many kinds of ways and settings and places. And then also just create opportunities and things that I want to do that I like to do and that are just good for myself spiritually and mentally. So that's kind of, you know, where I'm at and how I'm doing uh, is, is just working to create constantly that space through the relationships I have. Um, I feel it's a good time, honestly, for me in terms of relationships with my friends and my families, my family, well, families, sure, I got many families that I am, am love and, and love me back, but all of that's really grounding for me right now. I'm really like rooting myself in that context, rooting myself, my family's from Antigua and, and the country, and so I'm a dual citizen there, and so just rooting myself in that kind of heritage and history and legacy so I keep focused on what it means for me to be a human being um, and this planet, you know, that's, that's how I am. And I think that's how it's changed me too, to kind of to answer both questions at the same time. Thank you. Really, really appreciate uh, you sharing that. Ira. Thanks for that question. I want to plus one, everything Aletha said, but you know, I, I would agree. I, I, I have never been so exhausted. I, I feel like I've worked a decade in a year. Uh, 2021 was tough 2020 actually was tough as well and to do this work in the middle of a global pandemic right on one hand there's no better time because the disparities and inequities are really standing out we've got to leverage the moment and on the other hand right there's such a co a personal cost to the kind of relentless stress that comes with this work i also have had to actually make some really tactical pragmatic changes to my work style so unless there's something urgent going on, I try not to work on the weekends because I physically need it. I, I've actually started having some, some health issues and I, I really believe that it's, it's stress-related in the sense that just the kind of 10 energy that you have to put into this work and just your own personal makeup. You know, I, I, I think I, as I've done my own anti-racist work and I'm not an anti-racist expert, I mean, I, I definitely have grown my expertise and my skills, but I didn't start out there. I really started out much more comfortable in the EDI world. And so to all of a sudden experience everything that I've had to experience personally, professionally, your awareness around racism, just, you know, exponentially, you notice everything. And so it's just uh, been a, a couple hard years and, and I've had to, you know, for example, I 
take my vacations um, and I don't work. I leave numbers where I can be reached, but it's got to be a phone call. And because I need the mental break. Another thing I've started to do is I take a walk every day outside and I'm in Seattle, which means I'm usually walking in the rain. And I've just had to get used to it because if you don't do things in the rain here, you're not going to do anything. So, you know, to just change my mindset of I actually need to go outside for 30 minutes to still myself, to connect with nature um, to some degrees of an element of spirituality for me um, to refill my charge, so to speak. So things like that, that I've, I've started to do a gratitude journal. I finish every day with a post-it note writing three things I'm grateful for. And sometimes, you know, it, I don't even have the energy to do it. I might do some repeats, but the intention behind I'm now detaching from work and I'm going to reflect on something I'm grateful for, just these little practices have um, helped sustain me. Excellent. Well, we are both very privileged to have the two of you with us. I think this has been a great conversation that will benefit a lot of organizations who are on this journey with you as well. So thank you so much for your time, for the energy and the commitment that you both are putting into moving anti-racism forward. Thank you both for leading the way. Thank you for uh, sharing so much important information today. We really appreciate your time. And we will provide show notes in our uh, website with more information about the work that both of you are doing. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Centering Health Equity, a podcast dedicated to conversations on reducing bias in healthcare and advancing health equity. You've been listening to our conversation with Dr. Aletha Maybank, Senior Vice President and Chief Health Equity Officer for the American Medical Association, and Myra Aldana Gregorian, the Senior Vice President and Chief People Officer at Seattle Children's. For more information about their work, please visit our website at centeringhealthequity.com. You'll find show notes and more information about our guests. If you'd like to be on our show or would like to recommend someone for us to interview, please share this with us on our website or send us your recommendation on Twitter at CenterHealthEQ. Until next time, be well. Thank you.